Welcome, friends, to The Flower of the Cedar, a novel in episodic podcast form. We are about to start the next chapter. Come, join us. Chapter 14 Winter Lions on the Tor It soon became apparent that the child in green and brown who had hurtled out to meet her father was the only streak of exuberance in the house. Lara felt a kind of gloom straight away upon entering, passing through the carven arch into long, thin passageways that circled an inner courtyard, dead and bare of foliage now with the winter. Old heaps of snow lay huddled in corners as though slinking from sight. A fountain of stone stood in the center of the courtyard, but no water ran nor filled its basin, no birds perched on its lip, cocking their heads at the newcomers, the air seemed leaden and still. She had sat up too long as they walked through the streets. Her limbs felt shaky with tiredness, and she sagged into the grip of her carrier, hoping the family would not require much social interaction of her just yet. Perhaps a room somewhere with a window a noiseless little space away from the general traffic of the family's movements would be found for her, and she could sleep unbroken for some hours before facing consciousness again. It surprised her with what rapidity all her interest in her surroundings had drained from her. She did not want to turn over the images from the mahogany village that she had collected as they arrived, she could summon no inquisitiveness concerning her hosts. The world seemed to have suddenly narrowed to the sensations of her own body, weakness, exhaustion, a frantic scramble to get into unencumbered sleep as soon as she could. Dane and Toman were speaking together, but she could rouse no curiosity to listen, Toman's wife had come out to greet them, a spare, solemn woman rather like in build to Toman himself, and she was apparently giving some instruction on where the guests were to be housed. The arrangements were drawn up quickly with respect to Dane and Danai and to Lara's carrier, who stood quietly holding her. Soon Toman's wife gestured to the young man to follow her, and Lara was taken, along with Jan, to an upstairs room off of the second-story corridor. She did not know where Toran was taken. Lara lay on the bed in gratitude, sparing no attention to the room itself, and immediately closed her eyes. Jan was unpacking their things. 
Toman's wife spoke briefly to her in an undertone, then left them. Not long after this, Lara was asleep. She wakened to a blurry, warm feeling in her hand, what felt like many hours later. The room around her dark, but for a gentle, rosy light, emanating from a small alcove in the wall several feet from the bed. She peered at it for a moment, unsure why something about it seemed missing. Then realized that she had been watching for the ordinary ebb and flicker of lantern or candle light, and it was not there. This light held steady. How? But before she could wonder further, a second warm, wet sensation filled her palm, and she started violently. This, she knew, was what had awakened her. She turned and saw beside her bed a young wildcat of some kind, supple, and with a coat of fur rich red like the brew of the gods she and Jan had drunk long ago at the start of their journey. The warmth emanating from the animal was substantial. Already her body, which had instinctively drawn away from the unknown creature, was equally instinctively relaxing toward it. She must have slept the whole day, for any light from the sky outside was long gone. Again she slid her eyes sideways to look at the wild cat, somewhat worriedly. It seemed calm, tame. It let out a tongue to lick her palm again, and she snorted a single nervous laugh. What was it? It had lain gracefully on the boards next to the bed, so that her first view of it was not so alarming, but she knew what that length of leg would translate into when it stood. Herself standing, it would likely reach past her waist in height. Gradually she became aware of the chill in the room, apart from the waves of heat from the leonine creature, its presence did not set her at ease, but certainly she welcomed the warmth. She had wondered, on their first sight of the interior of a mahogany home, why this people would build their houses with courtyards open in the center, when clearly winter came here fiercely. Lara? She heard Jan's voice faint from outside the door to their room. Then Jan stood in the doorway. Lara, you're awake. Ah, I see you've met your companion. She winked and came in to sit on one of the rocking chairs draped with quilts. Nieta climbed a tree with fright when I saw mine. And Lara noticed that another of the animals had, indeed, followed Jan into the room and laid its head in her lap when she sat. But Toman's wife Nissa explained them to me before I had a chance to run off. What are they? Lara said. A kind of mountain cat, called a winter lion. Apparently they mostly live wild, following the snows through the seasons. 
Their blood runs so hot they can't abide life in milder temperatures. The Mahoganys befriended their race generations ago, it seems, and many households host them in the winters. They're not predatory, despite their look. Nissa says they take up with the mahogany young, carrying them about, sleeping beside them, gentle as lambs. Mahoganys don't develop their hardiness to cold until they reach their fifteenth winter, so the warmth of a winter line keeps the children strong during the cold season. Lara looked at hers, its head raised, sphinx-like, above two outstretched forepaws, gazing at her, unblinking. Why should they come indoors at all if they're wild? she asked. No one knows why they began to, said Jan, musingly running her palm over her winter lion's smooth skull to the neck. Dane tells me that the marked ones have a story about it, that the goddess gave to certain families of the winter lions the desire and the summons to live among the mahoganies when she first gave the mahoganies these lands because she knew their young needed protection from the cold. Nissa says not. She says more likely their ancestors trained the winter lions to come, and to want to return, by the foods they offered them when the snows began. I couldn't say, me. I don't think... Jan checked herself and was silent, stroking her winter lion. Don't think, Lara prompted. Jan sighed for a moment, still looking down at the rounded shoulders, the velvet coat of the animal. I don't think Nyssa has any much love for the goddess. She went stiff when Dane spoke of the stories of the marked ones. She was quiet again for some minutes. All told, she continued, it makes for handy warmth for guests like us. Not often that people live among mahoganies, and me... I'm amazed the winter lions know to accompany adults like us because we can't stand the cold the way this people can. Especially as they don't seem to be pets, biddable or under authority. That itself makes me think Dane's story might be the truer. Why would an animal know of a stranger's need for warmth? And why, if it knew, would it care to meet that need? Unless the goddess had laid it in its mind? Lara brushed these speculations aside. Why don't they just warm their homes with fires like regular folk? Jan laughed. The mahoganies use no fire, nor need it. They bind to wood and hate fire near their dwellings, as a tree would. Haven't you seen their lights? She pointed to the alcove in the wall that Lara had seen and thought so odd. Now Lara looked more closely, and she saw that... Instead of lantern or candlestick, the alcove held a small, flowering plant whose blooms gave off a luminescence as deeply rose-colored as its petals. She stared at it, struck by the beauty of this method, and by the gentle way its light permeated the room. Candlelight spent its strength in a pool of light immediately circumferencing itself, but this flower light seemed no stronger at its source, no weaker at the far edges of the room. The light it gave filled the bedroom with a mild radiance. They bloom in the evenings for a few hours, then again in the early mornings, until the sun rises. Lovely, aren't they? Jan followed Lara's gaze admiringly, 
I watched the buds open in the family room downstairs once the lights started fading. Extraordinary, the way the flower light grew as the daylight failed. No fire, Lara said absently. No candles, no wood fires. No. How do they cook their food then? Mostly they don't. I wonder that myself. Nissa says cooked dishes are only eaten once a week, besides bread which they have every day. But how do they cook even that? They don't. She said most family kitchens prepare foods raw, fruits, milk, cheeses, preserves, vegetables. But it's only a small guild on the edge of town makes cooked foods like pies and roasts and all kinds of breads. She goes each week to buy a day of cooked dishes and a week of breads for the family. Otherwise they last the winter on the summer's produce they've sellered months before. The guild has its front shop along one of the town's streets near to the garden house, and there are tunnels leading back into the mountain spurs that join the city at that point. They've built furnaces in the caverns deep enough to be no threat of fire to the city, and there they do the bread baking and cooking for the community. Will we see them? Maybe, said Jan. We could ask. Lara realised her stomach had begun to make its emptiness felt. Will we eat soon? she asked. Jan laughed. That's what I came here for. The family is gathering for the evening meal. If I help you down, are you strong enough to come? I can take you up food if you're tired, but it's not far. Lara sat up experimentally, and the winter lion beside her half rose on its forepaws. She thought her body felt strong enough. She set her feet on the floor and shivered at its cold. Jan reached behind her and tossed a pair of thick slippers to Lara to wear. Lara looked at the winter lion, addressing it solemnly. I don't suppose you would consent to have me lean on you as I rise, she said. It mounted to all fours and brought its shoulders in line with her body. This she took as permission, and she laid a hand on its fur, feeling the formidable muscles beneath the skin. She stood up, slowly. Jan came and looped an arm beneath her shoulder and round her back, lending further support to Lara as they walked together downstairs. Their oddest appearance yet. Two girls, one invalided, and two huge felines flanking them. Toman and Nisa had three children. The youngest they had met already, the energetic girl, and two older boys, probably approaching their fifteenth winters, though it was hard to tell. They had all gathered for dinner around a circular table in a wide dining room just below Lara and Jan's bedroom. The parents were laying the table as the girls arrived, and Lara sank gratefully into the first chair she saw. The strength she had felt in her body had lasted barely the length of their trip down the stairs. Dane entered behind them a minute later, his rough hand at the nape of yet another winter lion, 
This one, not deep red like Lara's, but almost smoky with age. It betrayed winters not in any stiffness of movement, for like its kin it moved fluidly, effortlessly. Rather, the gravity of its face marked it old. Old, perhaps, beyond reckoning. Dane seemed perfectly at ease with it. He came and sat beside Lara and asked how she felt, whether she had slept, what she thought of their new surroundings. Lara answered him quietly, with some reserve, for to her he still seemed a stranger. Jan took a chair on Lara's other side, and soon the children of the family and their parents seated themselves. They ate a steaming chicken pie filled with bright vegetables and creamy sauce, several cold salads, and thick slices of a dark brown bread with butter. This, Lara supposed, must be a gesture of welcome for them, to serve the week's cooked meal on their arrival. She wondered if winter lions warmed food for the family as well, or if they had some other method of heating the cooked wares they had bought. "'My wife, Nissa, you have met,' Toman said to the three travellers, once they all had begun eating. Lara was only half listening, her eyes flitting to the empty alcove where Dane had entered after them, wondering whether Danai would join them, or whether she still preferred to keep solitary vigil at Toran's side. "'With honour I take you into our home,' Nyssa said, inclining her head slightly. "'And these three, my children, remain unknown to you. My eldest, John, who holds a Fletcher's apprenticeship, and his brother, Dion, whose arms are strong for the builder's work he will soon learn. And truly you have met our youngest, Leah, who yet remains at home.' Ama teaches me, Leah announced. I don't like it much. Leah, Nissa said quellingly. It's boring. Eat, Nissa said even more lowly. Do not speak. And we come to you with gratitude for your home and sustenance, Dane said, covering up the small snort of laughter Jan let escape when Leah rebelliously stuffed three huge forkfuls of pie into her mouth. I say to you truly that we would have perished in the wild without your kindness. Toman inclined his head to Dane and opened his mouth as though to speak. But Nissa, who was watching his face with something like anger, spoke first. And in truth many perish thus. You were fortunate. She bit down on the word with an odd roughness. Toman glanced at her, and his deep eyes flickered. Dane regarded her quietly. Though the runner will say, she said, taking up her knife in stiff fingers, that fortune touches it not that it was the God who guided my husband to you, and is this not what you will say? Still Dane merely looked at her, his head bowed gently, his hands resting to either side of his plate. 
Toman made a sound in the back of his throat, then said something in a language neither Jan nor Lara understood. Nissa nodded sharply and began to eat. The meal after this point felt strained, with the two older sons and their parents eating in total silence, rarely meeting one another's eyes, and only Leah peppering the silence with questions for the guests, seemingly oblivious to everyone else's discomfort. Lara wildly found herself explaining the layout of her mother's wheel-spoke herb garden to Leah after a particularly persistent barrage of questions. Jan, more willingly, told of the characters of each of her younger siblings and what kind of tree they liked best, Leah's favorite, the little girl announced, was Ash. And then the child demanded that Dane tell her a story. At this, Nyssa roused herself sufficiently from her inward abstraction to rebuke Leah, telling her to let the guests eat in peace. But Dane had nearly finished his food, and he said mildly that it would give him great pleasure to tell a story. He had had no young sisters, after all, and the task was a novelty for him. And so the meal was concluded to Dane relating a child's fairy tale of a little boy who fell in love with the moon, grew up to be an adventurer, and at last built with his own hands a curricle to sail the moon path over the sea and into the sky. Jan listened with a half-smile, in wonderment that he could rest so readily in whimsy in the face of unexplained tensions. When he had finished, the two sons thanked their parents and left the table. Leah had licked out the last of her chicken pie some time before and had cocked her head back against her chair with her eyes closed in bliss, imagining herself in a curricle sailing tinier and tinier, into the heavens. Toman, with a small, bare smile, thanked Dane for the tale and took Leah upstairs to sleep. Nissa began clearing the plates. Dane rose swiftly to help. The children gone, Toman and Nissa invited their guests into the sitting room, where flower lights crowned alcoves at each of its four corners illuminating the fair wooden furniture warmly. Nyssa sat straight, hands clasped between her knees, and Lara saw the same tightness in her eyes that she had seen at table. Toman's eyes shared the gravity of his wife's, but they were grieved, not rigid. Lara, uneasy, turned to Jan. Where are Toran and Danai? Jan's face, which had been subtly tense already throughout the meal, grew mournful. "'They've gone,' she said. "'Gone!' Lara felt an unfamiliar, unsettling sensation grip her. "'You slept for many days once we arrived,' said Dane. "'On the second day Toron roused. He was weak, but... With Danai's care, he grew well swiftly, enough to speak of leaving and continuing their journey. We pressed them to stay the winter through, but they would not. Dane's eyes seemed troubled. 
They carry some grief they will not name, and they did not want to remain among folk. They seek seclusion, and so they left as soon as Toron could walk. We sent them with provisions and gear replenished, but they would not let us do more. Lara did not reply, but sorrow pressed in more profoundly than she anticipated. She had never spoken to him, this man who had pursued her into her nightmare and brought solace. She had not thanked him. She had not learned if the hope would emerge for him from amid the sadness. And now it seemed she never would. They would not stay, even a little while. Dane shook his head. They have their own journey to take, he said. Did they, have they left any message for me? Lara asked, unsure why it mattered, why she wished it so much, why the unfinished bond smarted somehow with his healer who had emptied his strength for her, with his wife whose own strength had radiated round him in his work. Dane, looking at her with an odd compassion, said gently, No, I am afraid not. Jan put a hand on her shoulder and said lowly, I thanked them both as they left. Thanks from the heart. They knew, I think, what they had meant to us. Lara bent her head and breathed out. And it will be this next day or days, Toman said, after a long silence, when you may come before the garden and plea for refuge during the cold months. We shall accompany you to offer our home. Dane nodded. Again I give you thanks. Nissa shifted in her seat almost imperceptibly. Lara's winter lion had mounted the long, padded seat beside her and lay with its forepaws and head heavy in her lap. She felt grateful for the warmth from it that pervaded her whole body, for she was certain that she would find these rooms unbearably frigid, lacking its heat. Jan's winter lion curled beneath her feet, and Dane's sat upright beside him. Then Lara noticed in the corner of the room closest to Nyssa. Yet another winter lion, dark as the heart of a rose. Whose companion was this? Leah had been accompanied by a smaller, tawny creature, certainly not so dark, and it had retired with her to bed some time ago. Had it been Toron's or Danai's? Before Lara realized, she spoke her thought aloud, 
There is another, she said, looking at the animal in the corner. But your sons do not have winter lions beside them. Toman laid a hand on his wife's arm, gone suddenly stiff. And they have grown beyond their fifteenth winter, able to keep out the cold. Lara looked at the two of them, waiting for him to continue, but he spoke no more. It was Dane who next spoke. This was the winter lion of your third child, he said, his voice low, warm. Was it not? Jan said, but Leah had... Not Leah, Dane said. Nissa moaned. Would you speak of him? Dane said, facing her. It is for this I have come. Her eyes had shut, but at these words she opened them, and she did not veil the anger they held. Of what use, she said, her voice shaking, should we find a runner now, now, after he is dead? We do not need the gods' messages, we needed his... But her voice broke here, and she bent back in her chair, hands grasping her knees, head curving down. What did you need? Dane asked quietly. His help, she shrieked, standing. And it was as though she was alone in the room, alone with the god. She wielded her body like a whip against the mute air. Surely he who made all things knew. Surely with a gesture he could have stopped it. And why does he choose to speak only now? Why but to mock us would he send a runner when the time has gone so long? Why has he withheld what we needed and then come to demand our hearts? Her hands pressed against her sides and her voice dropped to a hard whisper. He shall not get mine. Truly he has lost that chance. He owes me answer. Toman began to rise, to reach for her, to speak. But Nissa turned on him and cried, And you, who have taken in this runner, who have welcomed his words, would you crawl, snivelling, back to the god? The beaten cur returning to its abuser, you disgust me. No. She drew back sharply from his extended hand. Truly, I am alone. Even my husband has deserted me. He sank back, letting his hand fall. Jan, Lara, and Dane made no move. Nyssa came to stand, trembling, before Dane, and said, Listen well, runner. I have made you welcome in my home for the customs of my people, but truly, I tell you that your blood 
is hateful to me. And when you return to your God, you shall bear him my answer. She took a step toward Dane and spat in his face. Then she turned and left the room. The Flower of the Cedar is written, produced, and published by me, Kay Ben-Avraham. This content is made possible by the support of my patrons on Patreon. We make monthly pledges they can increase, decrease, or cancel at any time. If you are enjoying listening, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Even a dollar a month makes a great difference to a struggling author. For those of you wishing to support this work in non-monetary fashion, you can tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help ratings rise so that other people can find it. Thank you so much. <laughs>